This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hello. And Rebecca, we're going to start with my interview because I talked to Alan Ruck, a.k.a. Connor Roy, uh, uh, unfortunately not destined to be president of the United States, <laughs> although maybe uh, it's unfortunately for the Republic as a whole. Um, it's so exciting to talk to him. I mean, everyone in succession is great in every episode. It's kind of the magic of that show. But I feel like Connor and Alan Ruck's performance has had a really special run this season where, with this like surprisingly lovely wedding that we had earlier as uh, Logan's death happened. Um, I mean, Rebecca, am I crazy that Connor's been kind of uh, like he made you like him more than you're used to this season? Yeah, that that monologue about being a, a plant or a rock. <laughs> I can't even remember exactly what I watched. And I was like, Alan, rock. Hey, a plant that grows on rocks. Yeah, <laughs> it was just the, the, I think that might be my favorite scene of the season so far. It's just cool to see him to get to do so much this season. And he's one of the only ones that wasn't nominated yet, right? Yes. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in our great strategy of figuring out who to talk to from a given show with Succession, it's so hard because there's so many great roles. But this is the season for him to get his due. And so I was really excited to get to talk to him about all of that. So let's hear my conversation with Alan Ruck. Alan Ruck, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Um as we're talking Succession's eighth episode has aired, Connor Roy is not going to be the president. Um, how are you feeling in this um, time of great mourning for your character, Connor Roy? You know, I think it's not a great period of mourning. I actually think he might be mourning the old man, but he's not really mourning the, the political thing. He's still going to weasel something out of it. Well, Slovenia sounds like the uh, the destination as this yeah. episode ends, which I, it's, I, he seems more excited about it than I would have expected. Maybe I'm underrating Slovenia as a uh, destination. Well, you know, these people are so messed up. It's just all about what can I get? Mm -hmm. What's my new thing I just got? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think he... Um, he sort of wins this prize and he feels like he had something to do with making, you know, whatever. He feels like he was a little bit of a player and he won this prize. But I think, you know, um, buyer's remorse will sink in as with <laughs> many things. Did you ever think for yourself about what this campaign has looked like off camera, about what, you know, Connor's war room and campaign managers might have looked like? Does that help you at all as an actor to think of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I just think being on the road is being on the road. And mm. as you probably know, it, it, it kind of sucks, you know, <laughs> moving around so fast, you know, and, and keeping to a schedule and you get you can get played out. So, I'm, you know, I 
relate to that. Yeah. And then um, I, I just think he would have finagled things in a way where he got to come in, make some, you know, inane speech, uh, shake a lot of hands, not very little conversation mm-hmm. and then out, mm-hmm. you know. Do you think those speeches sounded as wild as that concession speech that we actually saw? Like <laughs> not much reality to it. I can't imagine they would have been much different. <laughs> well, Mark, Mark Mylod, who's directed a lot of these episodes, says that you're very good at kind of running in character, like what they call it freebies, where you kind of improvise for a little bit. And I wonder if any of that happened in if there's versions of the concession speech that you got to run with on your own a little. I don't I don't recall doing it with that because, I mean, it was just a solid. I mean, it was just golden. And I don't I don't know what I would have added to that thing because. Yeah. He's just so small <laughs> in that <laughs> moment, you know. I think I probably would have tried to make it a little more heroic, you know, a little more positive. But he's just a dick. I'm sorry. He's just terrible. Well, he's and, uh, had a good season. Though they, and the trick of this season, I think, before this episode had been that we felt sympathetic toward Connor in a way that I don't think we ever have before. Like these really lovely scenes with Willa. Like I think their yeah. relationship had all this nuance to it to where I was really rooting for them by yeah. even even in this like, you know, trading their souls to uh, endorse Minkin. And I know that like playing kind of the idiot son has, you know, can have its wear and tear on you. Like you want to be able to show more of him. So even though he's a terrible person, is there some joy for you in getting to to reveal his humanity a bit more this season? Oh, I, I had a wonderful time. I had a wonderful time on the show from the beginning. They gave me a lot more to do this year, and that's always fun. You yeah, it's always the best. You know, best way to work. Just stay busy. I, I, I've just yeah, I've had a wonderful time. You know, because they give you these little clues because mm-hmm. it's not it's not just like a decal. It's not just pasted on. They, all these characters have like weird depths and, and, you know, idiosyncrasies and stuff. The writers are really good about that. They give you these little clues and then you just use your imagination and it takes you wherever you go. Yeah. I mean, the the wedding episode, when you get the re- reveal of the loony cake, which is like <laughs> sort of a revelation, sort of opens this whole other door that you don't get a lot of answers for. And I think that's the way the show works. You're not always going to get every single piece of the backstory. But it felt no. like a lot clicked into place for that character when I saw that detail. And I wonder if it felt that way to you, too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's alluded to things before in the second season. I can't remember what we were talking about. and I can't remember where we were. <laughs> where in the world? No, we, I, think we were in, took you. I, I think we were in Scotland. I think we were in <laughs> Scotland. And I had some little speech about uh, Roman starts to give me some shit and they're, they're chasing me out of the room so they can do their little schemes together. And um, he says something snark. He's like, oh, my mommy was in a crazy house. Ooh. You know, and um, so I, that, horrible. Yeah, what a horrible yeah, thing oh, well, to yeah. say. I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just one of a million little pieces <laughs> of nasty shit. Um <laughs> that we're so good at, uh, you know, they didn't give me a lot of opportunities to snap back, you know, and like argue. He just never did. He just kind of absorbed whatever they're throwing. Yeah. So here and there, like he said something like, you know, you never had it as bad as I had or something like that, as hard as me, something. And so then you find these things out. Mommy was, you know, had psycho-emotional challenges. Yeah. She had a pill problem. She had a liquor problem. She was in and out of institutions, you know, and then, if he wasn't with her at home, if she was away, then he was at a boarding school somewhere. So yeah. I think it was pretty lonely. Yeah, really sad. Yeah, not great. Dickensian. 
Well, you get the retort in the um, the karaoke scene of the uh, the needy love sponges response, yeah. and uh, which is heartbreaking, but also a pretty good line. Like, I feel like Connor really ends that scene um, on top somehow, despite being heartbreaking. He's not he's not entirely unaware of himself and his place and the dynamics and the other people. I mean, he's lived with them for years. He knows exactly what they are, really. But he keeps going back. Like mm-hmm. he has that big, that big dramatic uh, speech, the karaoke. And then, of course, the next day is just horrific. But um, he keeps floating back to them because mm-hmm. he doesn't have any other. He has Willa, which is without Willa, Connor's story is just darkness. <laughs> I know. Like at the end of that episode when she's in bed, I couldn't believe how relieved I felt for a character <laughs> who, again, should not be president and is a bad person. <laughs> but like yeah. I wanted right, her right, to right. be there so badly. Yeah. The Run Through Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You guys only finished filming this a few months ago, right? Like production went pretty close to when the uh, the season began. I think I was finished in the middle of, oh, it might have been February. Yeah, I was in the middle of February, but I think they went until March. Okay, so but still just a few months ago. I mean, I wonder yeah. what that come down process is. You know, you said in another interview, like you've had, you've been known that you get to go back to this great job every couple months, you know, you take a break. And now that that's gone, like, have you kind of wrapped your head around that change in your life? Just recently, I had this crazy dream that I was watching Succession, and I wanted to call up a bunch of people to tell them how good it was. But everybody, this is so, this is dark. Everybody I called was dead. Oh and I was no! Like, oh no! You know, um, so I, that was some. That was some big like something psychological. In there. It's over. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> Did you wake up thinking like, okay, well, the show might be over, but at least not everyone's dead. Like it's not as yeah, bad yeah, as God. your subconscious made it out to be. Yeah. I mean, your career, I think, trained you to jump from thing to thing to thing and kind of adjust with change in that way. So is it kind of like regaining those old skills that you had of you know changing jobs that frequently? I remember. Uh, uh, the job I had before Succession, I mean, I've done a couple in-between things, but uh, the series I had before was The Exorcist with Gina Davis on Fox. And I had gone back to Chicago where I had started. I felt like Rip Van Winkle because, like, everything looked the same, but all my friends were really old. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and I just I started to dig the town again, and I just enjoyed that experience. And then I got this job, and I went right from Chicago. I never came home to L.A. I went right from Chicago to New York for wardrobe fittings or something. And I didn't know anybody, and I was like, I just had the best experience of my life. And mm. 
you people are never going to measure up. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, and then they all proved me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like over and over again, it was one of the nicest groups I've ever worked with. Great crew. Everybody, everybody brought their A game. You know, everybody was just adding extra, like love to this thing. So yeah. really made it fly. Is that kind of the joy of an actor's career is that, you know, you move from thing to thing. Sometimes you'll go into something where it's a terrible working environment, but that there could always be something even better around the bed. Is that kind of what, what keeps the engine of a career going that knowing that could happen? I think that most actors are actually a missing a chip <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's like that let's face reality chip <laughs> you know because we don't want to spend that much time uh, we want to make our own reality right yeah uh so uh, i think you just always keep thinking i mean i have some friends that are, are really talented and um they never really got national recognition or anything like that, you know, but they did their work in, you know, different areas, Chicago, wherever, and um, are really terrific. And um, I hope it's been satisfying for them. To have that, have a career even without national recognition? Yeah. Just yeah. to have enjoyed all those productions. And Do you feel like that would have been like, you can imagine that path for you, like if you had had a career? Where it was easy. Like, yeah. Like, because it's sort of the same thing, right? You get to escape into a different world. Yeah. Yeah. But what uh, did you ask if things, oh, no. do I think things <laughs> could could uh, have gone the other way for me? Yeah, like, or if you imagine yourself being happy with it going that way, like if you had had like a solid regional theater career, like would that have worked just as well for you? I think it, I think at this point in my life, I would have made peace with that. And I would have been like, this is really cool. And I belong here. Yeah. You know? Well, because I, I, I think you've talked about Ferris Bueller and being identified with a single role in that way as being a real double-edged sword. And I think you kind of got the like the, that burst of recognition and then having to grapple with it in a different way that, you know, fame and success comes in a lot of different ways. But that's a really distinct yeah. way to kind of wrap your head around all of the different things that recognition can bring. Like it taught you a lot at that age. Yeah, that that it, it's fleeting. <laughs> Mostly, <laughs> it's like, oh, look at this guy. What's next? You know. Well, and like people see you as a character. I mean, this happens with Connor Roy yeah. too, I assume. And like you're kind of like a like a walking character as opposed to being an individual person. And I imagine it feels different this time being identified with a distinctive character as when we were when you were in, a, in your twenties. But it's sort of the same thing, right? Where you merge with yeah. this fictional creation. Yeah, I mean that was a terrific part um and i worked really hard on that and this was a terrific part and the writing was so good i mean mcfadden said this once he said it feels like all you need to do is put on the clothes and walk onto the set hmm. you know because mm -hmm. the writing is so good and in a way that was true it's just an amazing confidence we had with each other everybody's chops you knew everybody was just gonna nail it and then we just had great love and faith in the writing yeah we just felt like oh propelled into doing how do you look for what's next when you move on from something like that does it change what you want i mean i know you kind of go where the jobs are but does it change what you look for and what makes you feel like something's right for you my criteria now are really sort of small and shallow <laughs> i want to work on the west coast of north america <laughs> um if i could work in los angeles that would be ideal mm -hmm. but you know anywhere up to vancouver same time zone, all good. Yeah. Uh, that's mostly it. Well, it's a practical thing, right? Having like a working acting yeah, career. Yeah, we, I, Mireille and I have uh, these kids and they're getting to the point where they don't want to travel around the world anymore. Yeah. They, their lives. And so uh, being able to stick close to home, 
Yeah, I talked to uh, Dagmar Dimenchik a couple weeks ago, and she has teenage kids and is living in New Jersey. And it's like her and her husband figuring out how to work in New York. Like, you know, I have little kids and I have one consistent job, which is hard enough. Like the idea of having to jump around a different job. I I don't really understand how people do it. She actually, the way she talked about working on Succession, I think she did more of this than you did, because I don't think Connor like sinks into the background of a scene. But learning to be in a scene where there's eight people and you don't know where who the camera's going to be on or when it's going to be on you or what's going to get used and learning how to react and to be present in something. And I wonder how that worked for you, if that was a learning experience for you, if it felt more like theater that you've done in the past. Was that a different way of working on Succession? I, I really enjoyed it. Um, at first, you're like on high alert. You're like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh. But then what you just do is you just stay in it. Yeah. You stay in it. And if you you don't talk for 10 minutes, you know, uh, you just listen, you mm-hmm. just try to soak up what everybody's putting out, you know, it just keeps you in the tone of the room. And you, if you do that, if you really listen, if you really keyed into what is, what the transactions are between people and you clock that you will always be in the right place. You will, you will never not be right. Yeah. You know? Do you get surprised? Because I know you watch the episodes kind of live when they air. Do you get surprised when you see what makes it in? Yeah. I mean, the, the great thing about uh, like Mark Mylod and all our directors is they just shot the hell out of everything, mm-hmm. you know? And and so a lot of those freebies that um, uh, Mylod would call, sometimes there was some really zany stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but just maybe wasn't appropriate. But, um, <laughs> you know, just didn't didn't actually fit what was going on in the scene but we had a lot of fun we had a lot of fun doing that yeah. you know it's a really nice way to work because the script is so solid and then you shoot it like that a few times and then they come up with all these alternative lines mm-hmm. especially for someone like kieran yeah roman they they had like pages and pages of like just nasty shit for him to say yeah and you know and he can make up his own now which is good oh and god then, that's um, a double-edged sword too i don't know if i want that skill well, I, th- I think you can just put it in his hip pocket and save it for later. <laughs> but um, and then we would do these, you know, freebies, just like whatever came out of your mouth. And sometimes yeah. you just paraphrasing. But sometimes somebody does something squirrely. And yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, I was watching you we were on The Daily Show talking to Al Franken, who, of course, has extensive actual real world political experience. Like, do you find yourself talking to people who have like been in these halls of power who like want to talk to you more or what like expect you to know about the ins and outs of the real news corp like has it given has it given you a different status in those worlds uh i haven't i haven't uh had any of that yet besides al really because i just haven't met too many politicians lately do you want but, to um, well i don't know i mean I've liked a couple of them in my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of makes me think about the broader question. Like, are you eager to leave all this like halls of power stuff behind? And like, you know, in, in terms of the work that you do or in terms of what you're thinking about, like, presumably you've thought more about the actual Murdochs than you would have if you weren't on succession. Are you ready right. to so that's kind of how close actors that learn about the world? Yeah, so that's, that's how. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that's the way we actually grow. Yeah. Is, yeah. So are you kind of eager to like close that book and read and like read the next one and kind of figure out what's the next part of the world you'll learn? Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm happy to do something new. Yeah. I mean, um I think Jesse was right to end the show now. I think by the end of this season we will have told that story of succession. Yeah. And um what came before, I don't know, maybe that's interesting, but I think what comes after is just dr- quite dreary mm. for basically all the people involved. You yeah. know, I, I don't think life gets better. 
Well, like, and I don't want you, you to spoil what's coming next, but, like, I think the tone of episode eight where you end with this, like, shock and horror of what they have done in electing this guy, like, it, right. it makes me feel like it is setting up into a much bleaker world. Because Succession can be so funny, and I think you can enjoy watching them so much. And I think that was yeah. a really sharp reminder of, like, no, 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 they're ruining America, and you need to remember that. Yeah, I mean... um, I think different people will come away with with different things. There's people that just actually can't watch our show because oh, yeah. there's no there's no heroic person. There's no person to root for. Yeah. They're all just despicable. That never ever bothered me. <laughs> 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 I'm happy to hear about creeps, um, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, I mean, it, people will react to the next two episodes. However, they do. Some people will be like, well. That wasn't so bad. Yeah. You know, other people think it's, no, I'm serious. Yeah. And other people think it's, you know, the end times. So how do you watch the episodes? You watch them live on Sunday nights. Like, what, do you with your family? Do you watch them on your own? Do you have a plan for the finale when it's all truly over? Uh, no, no big, no, no big party plans. Um, I usually watch them uh, with me, Ray, my wife. Um, we've been tag teaming because her show, Lucky Hank, mm-hmm. on AMC was on the exact same time. Oh, I didn't know that. On, on Sunday night. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, so we we would, you know, we would take turns. That's not that's not fair at all. Someone should have done something about that. Above my pay grade. <laughs> I don't I don't know who to talk to. And the kids aren't old enough to watch Succession yet. It no, like. I'm Mirai keeps saying that to our 12-year-old someday I'm going to do something that you can watch. <laughs> Does she have any interest in it? Like or do your kids care about what you do? Yo, yeah, yeah. Uh, my little girl, she's not little anymore, she's 12, um, she's quite taken with Video Village. Oh. So she's gone to visit Ray on a few sets, and she's sat next to the director. Oh, so she's like a future uh, filmmaker. Oh, maybe. Yeah. She, she likes to write, so we'll see. And then uh, my littlest one, Larkin, is eight, and he um, he can, like, cry on cue. I mean, he, he can really work it, wow. so I think we're, we're in trouble, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he's – yeah, I mean, he just throws like his whole body into like whatever grief he has because you said no. Uh huh. Uh, yeah. 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 So either a future actor or just a manipulator, maybe, or <laughs> or a lawyer. Lawyer. <laughs> do Do you have any feelings about your kids being actors, being the children of actors? I don't mind at all. I don't mind. You know, um, I have uh, grown kids by my first marriage yeah. and my eldest daughter uh, has a beautiful singing voice and is very funny. And um, she got an agent in New York and she tried it for about four years and hated every minute mm. of it. Just the just you sing your heart out and they're just like, thanks. That was great. You, that's it. Yeah. You know. And so she went through that about 100 times. And then she said, this is bullshit and she went back to school and now she's a nurse huh wow well because like that you know your career broadly like you work so much and you've kind of worked on so many different shows and you come in for a little while and you don't know if you're going to come back and you have dealt with that uncertainty and i assume a lot of auditions that you didn't get and do you think that you were kind of born ready for that is that something you learn over time does it make you a, a stronger person when you get through uh that many kind of ups and downs and changes in your career I have a really good friend named Jim Fife, who was my understudy in Biloxi Blues in New York back in the 80s. And he's one of the funniest people uh, I've ever met. He did stand up for a while. And then he became the headmaster of a private school. Wow. So, right. Um, but he, he had kind of a checkered relationship with acting. And he said, acting to me is like a beautiful girl. And you meet her one night and she actually takes you to bed and you think you're in love. 
and then she doesn't return your calls. Mm-hmm. And just about when you're ready to get over her, like a year later, she calls up and says, why don't you come over? (laughs) (laughs) And you keep coming back. And well, you know, you're like, maybe, maybe it'll be different. It's that thing. Tomorrow will be different. (laughs) Do you you think that at the, at the age that you are now, there's like, you can weather it more. Like if she calls back, if she doesn't, it's kind of, you feel more even about it than you did maybe when you were 30. It depends. It depends uh, what it is. I mean, I yeah. think I think there's things you can still get really invested in um, at any age, and you're like, "Oh my god, I want to do that. I want to do that." Yeah. So, I don't think that really ever goes away. Yeah. I like. I wonder about people like Gene Hackman, who's he's been retired for like 15 years now or something, right? He's 92 yeah. or whatever it is, and I know he writes books, but I just wonder if he ever, or if he's just totally done with it. So you feel like there's no retirement ever for you? Like you'll I don't think for me, you know. I mean, acting when you're ninety two sounds pretty good. You get to work with good people again. Short days, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have I also have this thought about Connor Roy being a billionaire running for president. Like that's the most insanely hard job. Like if you if I were a billionaire, like that's the last thing in this world I would want to do. Like work fewer hours and do less. Well, y- y- you know, the one thing, uh uh he's not mean enough. Mm-hmm. Connor doesn't have teeth. Yeah. Not not many. Not like his, his brothers and his sister and many other people in the show. Um, so he would really be a shitty president. I mean, besides the fact that he's uh, not equipped on any level, just the fact that he doesn't have an edge that way. Mm-hmm. That's like, I'm the boss and shut up or I'll kill you. <laughs> you know, he just, <laughs> he, I, I don't think he really possesses that. Yeah, I don't think I'd make a very good president. It sounds like you also don't have the uh, the sharp teeth for the be the real president. I no, 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 no. I, 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 I just, I'd have my head in my hands a lot. You know? So Rebecca, now speaking of people doing standout work on television, because that is this time of year, you talked to Stephen Yun, who is the star and an executive producer on Beef, which is just this like big hit on Netflix, despite being incredibly dark, um, which maybe is a trend on Netflix, the place that brought us Squid Game. Um, and it's such an incredible performance from him, who's, you know, he has shown a lot of his talent in his movie roles before, but there's something really special about Beef, and I'm wondering if you cracked the code of what made his character so, like, pathetic but intriguing all along. I think it's because, you know, he and Ali Wong signed on before there were even scripts, so they really got to be much more involved with the creation of the storytelling uh, for Beef. And there's this scene at a Korean church where his character Danny breaks down. Mm. And, you know, Stephen talks about how he was raised in the Korean church and he knows what that feels like. And and I think it's that level of authenticity and, and the way he relates to this character in some ways that really makes this performance just like so incredible. Did you get any insight on how a season two of Beef will be possible? I think all, we all want to know. Yeah, uh, you'll have to listen, and I definitely ask about. I, I mainly wanted to see what he kind of thought happened to Danny after this season, but mm. he does talk about how he had always sort of thought that this was going to be a, a limited series, and the, you know they intentionally made this story have a beginning and an end. So uh, he seemed fine with it, maybe not you know going on and this being the end of Danny's story. Uh, well, I I have mixed feelings about it because the show is so great, but it also ends so well. So maybe he's on the same page that I am of how do you how do you top something as good as the first season of Beef? Yeah. Well, let's hear all of that and more in your conversation with Stephen Yun.
Today, I'm so excited to welcome Stephen Yun to the podcast. He's the star and EP of Netflix's Beef, which premiered in April to much acclaim. It's been one of my favorite series of the year by far. So I'm really um, grateful that you're doing this interview with us. Thank you for joining oh, me. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Rebecca. I talked to the show's creator, Lee Sung Jin, before the show aired, and he told me that the two of you have been friends for a bit and mm. were talking. And I, I'm curious how he sort of brought up the idea of this series to you. Um, around that time, we were frequently having conversations here and there, just about anything and everything. And they would go along and end up in weird places, a lot about existential angst at the time. And so when he called me, I was in New York, he called me one night and he was just like, Hey, I have some ideas that I'm like throwing around. Do you like any of these? And he said, road rage. And instantly I was like road rage. There's something about road rage. And when we got into it, it was, you know, the Spider-Man meme of a Spider-Man pointing at another Spider-Man. Um, just kind of the climate that we're still in that we were deeply embedded in at that time. And then we ended up at God in that conversation at the end. Mm. So uh, what, whatever that is. And um, it kind of just became this natural process. And we spoke for about a year. And then when we went out to start pitching, um, Ali jumped in and then it became more realized and more special. And yeah, we find ourselves here now. So it's kind of wild. Yeah. Uh, Ali Wong and you have such an incredible chemistry in these roles because oh, these thanks. two characters really have to play off each other for the series to work. Um, did you two know each other or did you sort of have to develop that kind of uh, relationship for this? We knew each other, I guess, just being Asian Americans in the business. You know, I remember I was on Walking Dead when her first special came out and I remember watching it in my trailer being so blown away. Uh, I immediately... DM'd her on Twitter. I was like, you're so great. Thank you for holding it down. And Yeah. And then we just kind of briefly met here and there. We worked on Tuca and Birdie together, but we never really got to see each other consistently. And so when we were building up to do this show, I don't know, it just kind of felt right from the very get. And we didn't have to do a lot of chemistry things. If anything, we just had to remind each other, not explicitly, but like through kind of hanging out um, on set that we actually like each other <laughs> <laughs> so that when we got on set and had to say the words that were written, we could just go there because we felt safe. So it was really nice. And Sunny had told me that the character that was going to be opposite Danny was originally sort of thought of as like a Stanley Tucci kind of character mm. before Allie came on. I'm curious for you, how did it being Allie sort of change how you approached Danny? Um, well, I think it made Danny a little bit more flawed for me personally it made danny more judgeable it became more difficult in a way uh to reason with um someone like danny that would just go at it with ali like that it, 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 you know when when i when i think it's like someone that's like you're punching up it's very clear you know you feel justified but with ali there's so many aspects especially between men and women, like there's so many aspects that feel like you could be punching up, you could be punching down, you could be misunderstanding each other. There's so many complex things at work that everybody just kind of becomes more gnarly. And so I think what Ali brought was 
a real deep, truthful complication to the whole thing that I think were it not for her involvement in this, maybe the story would have been a little oversimplistic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I definitely agree with that. And since you and Allie, you know, were a part of this project from the very beginning before scripts, tell me a little bit about developing the character of Danny. What did you find sort of most difficult about when you had to sort of get to understand him and I assume not hate him, you know, to play him? Yeah. I think what's hard, um, and this reflects a lot of my, my larger process as an actor is you're usually trying to deduce who someone outside of yourself is, which usually leaves them in a lot of judgment. Um, you've kind of made an archetype or an understanding of who you think this person is. You've, you've said, Oh, this is this guy. He's broken. He's fucked up. He's kind of shitty. Um, he does reprehensible things. Um, he's not evolved or you can make all these assessments about this person and then you have to say, oh, I'm going to play that guy. <laughs> and, um, and I think the difficulty was that, like facing the inherent shame of someone like that. Right. Um, and in turn, then having to face your own shame about whether you can really empathize with someone like this and really understand their position. And that was tough at first, but... And it continues to be tough. I think that's that's a difficulty of shame. We love in this society, I think, to just kind of leave people defined in negative ways and then leave them there. And so for me, I felt like we were playing with aspects of ourselves, um, not explicitly like Ali and I individually, but more like as human beings, um, who are we and what are we on a daily basis? Are we just like a performance every day or are we being honest and truthful about like who we, how we feel and how we feel wronged or how we feel um, unsupported by society or reality? So, so it was that, I mean, sorry to get so heady about it, but like that was what building Danny was like um, exploring all the shame of someone, maybe not looking their best. Well, the other people who've worked on the show that I've talked to about you all say you're you are kind of heady and cerebral and and you like to think and talk it out. So I'm, yeah. I, I don't think you have to apologize. For okay, being cool. Honest. Yeah, it's just known. I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> I like it. I, I, that's why you're on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Um, was this character at all inspired by people in your real life, or do you take inspiration from things you observe? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it was a lot of the Venn diagram that Sonny and I share of a, of of our experience growing up. Um, we're both non-coastal Korean Americans that kind of grew up in the Korean church. And so there was a lot of archetypes to mine. There was a lot of stories. There was a lot of cousins to make fun of as we were building <laughs> these things. And But then there's also that half of you that, you know, you look at your old friends or your family that you've kind of left in judgment. And there's also that feeling of like tender, warm love that you have for them too in their broken humanity. And so, yeah, we were just kind of mining from all aspects of people we know, parts of ourselves. It, it feels like a question like this and even this exercise of making a show like this is really just, to me, it makes me think about what does it mean to be a human being? Mm-hmm. 
Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of being raised in the Korean church, that scene where Danny breaks down in the church, I think I've I've seen lots of people posting on social media and saying like, this is such a specific experience and I've never seen this captured before. And it's so relatable for a lot of people who have mm. sort of grown up in that church. And I'm curious for you filming that, what that experience was like for you. It was all the feelings, you know, I, um, I, I relate to that experience I also am aware of the way in which that particular experience is judged, um, mm. it, it, you know, in the same way. And, and I'm part of that, too. I, I judge that experience as well, positively or negatively. And I think the exercise, again, was we really wanted to express the Korean church not as a place to be kind of sold or like proselytized or even a place that's condemned we were just like this is where people gather and this is what human beings do here and look at what we are and i think that was always the approach of that scene and so you know for me that scene was really it helped me understand a lot of things i remember after high school i stopped going to church often because i was just kind of off doing my own college thing and i didn't really find the time to do that but whenever I would go back, I would find myself really tearing up during praise moments that were happening. And I always, my whole life, was I was always curious. I'm like, why am I about to cry? Like, what is this? Is this, um, oh, I feel safe again being here because, you know, this is the one time in my childhood where I felt safe? Or is it because I'm at a Korean church? Like, and, and and I don't I think I think certainly all those things contribute, but while we were filming it, this thing really appeared to me for me to understand, which was we shot all the band, we shot the extras and um who were phenomenal. The background actors were incredible. There there were also people from the Korean church too that that resonated with that experience. So it was very authentic. And I remember uh, I was supposed to cry and I remember coming in feel watching them do this praise song and i was like oh i feel it i think it's gonna i think it's gonna be a good scene i think we're gonna get it and they turn the cameras on to me which then asks everybody else to be quiet because we need it for sound and so everybody isolated me and i tried to get there and i couldn't and i think a long time ago a younger younger me would have panicked and just try to like squeeze it out and like just blast through it and like come with up with something but I realized that something was wrong. So I asked for a break. I asked if they could shoot some other things. And I was like, give me like 10, 15 minutes. Let me just like walk around and think about this. And then I came back and I realized that it's because everybody stopped singing. Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, like it was because I had been isolated. And the inherent purpose of praise or group experience or singing, whether it be praise music or a live concert, secular concert, is that you can lose yourself, that you can, you know, you don't have to hang on to your identity so hard, uh, your personal story. And Danny's personal story is bleak, the one he tells himself. And I think in being able to let that go for a second, 
there's got to be such a deep catharsis to that. And that's what it felt like. And so when I asked the background actors, like, could you all sing? Can we just continue to sing? And they did. Then it was like, boom, like it went straight there. And that was, um, that was cool to learn. Hmm. For me. That's so yeah. interesting. Mm. It totally makes sense. I, I, I see what you're saying about needing to hear the song. Um, mm. And so their story ends at such an interesting place. But did you and Sonny and, and Ali talk about what happens to them after this show? I know he's talked about a three arc series in his head, but for you mm. and Danny, how much did you think about where he goes after this story ends? Um, we haven't talked about it too extensively. It was always just kind of like up in the air. I think the, from the very get, the way we pitched this was as a, as an anthology, a limited series. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we did want to close that loop at the end. Certainly there's more that Danny could go through. I honestly don't have any specific understanding of like where it could really go. I think, mm. I think there's a lot of places it could go that it almost feels impossible to narrow it down to right, one. Right. Um, but yeah, we we talked about it. We we joked about it and but also when you revisit it, you watch it again and you're like, "Yeah, that's pretty it's pretty complete." <laughs> you know. <laughs> I know they went through so much in one season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you know, on a, on a human level, like the journey doesn't stop there because you've come to some understanding. It is a yeah. continual practice to be alive, but um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is an origin story. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm I'm curious. You know, this the series has so much comedy in it that mostly comes from sort of a dark place. But mm. how did you sort of find that balance on set to make sure it still fit with the tone of the show? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think because the tone was as grounded as we were going for while having moments that were totally just like insane at times. Um, I really had to lean into never bailing on Danny. Mm, Um, You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I knew that the performance needed to stay within the boundaries of an acceptance and an understanding of him as opposed to a judgment of him. And there are many moments where I just wanted to judge him, where I, I was like, you want me to do what today, Sonny? Like, what am I shooting? What's he doing? And it was all about not leaving him high and dry because I think that would have compromised the whole character, to be quite honest. I think I think Danny, to me, is a character and and Amy as well is a character to be related to 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 kind of reflect off of all of us and if i would have bailed on any part of him and left him in shame i think that would have opened the door for all of us to bail on Danny Danny and so um and so when i found myself in situations where like i knew the joke was on on him i was like okay the joke's on Danny and um i'll be his i'll be the guy patting him on the back while he looks so pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know you and Ali and Sonny released a statement about David Cho after sort of hearing people react to him being included in the series. What was mm. that process like for you? Well, I think, you know, personally for me, I don't really care to go too much into that aspect of the show. You know, the show mm-hmm. is, to me, like talking about the show is most important, but I think for us, we didn't want to leave people in mystery. Um, we wanted to say what we wanted to say. And um, 
you know, the statement for us was pretty complete for us. Yeah. I do want to sort of look at your overall, the work you've done lately. I think you have the most incredible taste. Like I look at your films, like Sorry to Bother You, Okja, Burning, Minari, Nope. Like it's just an incredible run um, that you've had. And I'm curious, what, what is your secret to saying yes to a script? (laughs) um i don't have any secrets Uh, you know it it, for me it's it it really becomes about i can get into the weeds about how lucky i am for which i am incredibly fortunate that i find myself being in positions where scripts that i didn't know existed or stories that i didn't know existed or directors that i didn't know knew me kind of approach me and and they're available. So um, I have to, I have to lead with, I have a lot of luck, but for me, the thing that I always kind of gravitate towards is, are they trying to say something, you know, is, is the, is, is the story trying to say something? And, and I don't even mean like, is it trying to teach something? I don't, I don't really care to teach anything. It's just, is it, is it trying to reflect something off of our society or off of something that I believe? And, I think every script thus far that I've said yes to had something that deeply resonated with me um, in every aspect. It never became like, I need to do this type of role. It, it was more like, oh, you're saying that? That's pretty cool. And you as a filmmaker are bold about it, even cooler. Like, I'm totally down. Um, you know, for me, the dire- the best directors are the ones that are the unequivocal leaders of a set. And I know that's the role, but you can kind of suss it out when you meet someone like Boots, when you can meet someone like Bong, uh, Lee Chang-dong, Jordan, there's Isaac, there's these leaders. And um, it doesn't feel like they're hesitating about their decisions, especially all of the people that I that that I mentioned are like extremely prepared, but then their magic comes when they let go and they just see what unfolds, and they always leave space for that. And that's to me like a really exciting mark of a great kind of director, auteur, writer, um, because they're writing something that they're curious about, that they're trying to express, but then they kind of like let it go and they go, this is out of my hands. This is now in the hands of an actor or a cinematographer or an editor. And it kind of goes through these stages. And yeah, I've just, that's kind of who I'm looking for. I'm looking to work with great directors. And you're, you've wrapped your work on Bong's next movie, right? That one's yeah, all yeah. done. That's exciting. Yeah. You guys are reuniting. I can't wait to see it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. He's, um, uh, I continue to be amazed by, how gracious and wonderful he is. I'm curious, you know, The Walking Dead was such a, a moment for your career, um, hmm. which is now quite a while ago, but do you feel like that was such a major turning point when you talk about kinds of roles that would come towards you or that people would reach out to you about after that? Or do you feel like that's more of a more recent development? Honestly, I think I think for me it was Director Ball. Mm-hmm. He he really took a chance on me with Kay, and um, I feel so grateful to him because he saw me when a lot of people didn't see me, um, even myself, really. And he took a chance and 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 really pushed for me to be in that film. And after that, I've kind of just been riding a ride of. I think that was a challenge for me to tell my personal 
point of view. Um, and then furthermore, actually, right after Bong was Boots, um, and he hadn't even seen Okja. So again, Boots as well. I think I think there were people that maybe were open to me, but I had to also have space and openness for them by saying maybe no to a couple of the things that came right after Walking Dead, mm. um, um, which weren't like, let, let's be honest here. Like it wasn't like 10, 15, 20 things. It was like, maybe like an idea that we could develop here. Do you want mm-hmm. to play like a tech CIA agent on the run? And I was like, no, I don't. And um, if anything, The Walking Dead afforded me the ultimate privilege in feeling financially secure, amongst many other things. But I'm, I'm very grateful to that experience for sure. Yeah, that, that takes away that pressure to say yes to whatever yeah. for, for a job at that point. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Well, Stephen, I really appreciate you talking to me a little bit. And, and for everyone listening, if you haven't checked out the show yet, I don't know what you're doing. You better tune into Beef. It's on Netflix now. And thank you again, Stephen. Thank you. I appreciate that. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. In the meantime, find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. Read everything else we do at VanityFair.com. And find us on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.